Good leadership is broad, complex, dynamic, and it's often challenging. Most of us don't do well long-term as leaders if we keep doing things the same way we've always done them. On this episode, if you aren't already, how to get moving. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 374. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Those of you who have listened to the show for a while have heard me espouse the value of movement, the importance as leaders, well, not even just as leaders, as human beings, of moving forward, sometimes maybe even moving backwards a bit, but moving as a way to learn, as a way to influence the world, as a way to build courage and bravery in the work that we do. And today's guest is someone that when I started researching him and reading his book, the word movement was the thing that came up for me in just about every aspect of his life and his work. I am thrilled to welcome to the show today, Scott Harrison. Scott, in 2004, served as a photojournalist for Mercy Ships in Liberia, West Africa, where he learned the life-threatening effects of contaminated water. Upon moving back to his home in New York City in 2006, he founded the organization Charity Water, Today, Charity Water is one of the most visible nonprofit organizations in America, and he is the author of the new book about his journey, Thirst, a story of redemption, compassion, and a mission to bring clean water to the world. Scott, I'm so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. Dave, thanks for having me. This is fun. Your story of Charity Water, as I mentioned in the bio, maybe starts officially in 2004, but I think after learning more about your story, that the real story probably starts when you were four years old. Your family moved into a new home, and one day, your mom suddenly collapsed. What happened? Yeah, I was born in Philadelphia, and and when I was four, my dad took a new job uh, over in New Jersey, and he wanted to move the family closer to, to reduce his commute so he could spend more time with me, and they are hoping to have more kids. And we moved into this drab gray house in the winter that was on a cul-de-sac and there was a great public school that I could walk to. Uh, but unknown to all of us, this, this house had a carbon monoxide gas leak. And this was before they had actually invented the detector. You know, now you could go to Home Depot and buy them in blister packs. So we didn't know this. And it was the dead of winter. On New Year's Day, my mom passes out unconscious on the bedroom floor and after a long series of blood tests, they identified this massive amounts of carbon monoxide, carboxyhemoglobin in her bloodstream. And my dad and I had been getting a little sick too, but we'd only been sleeping in the house. He'd been commuting, you know, working long hours at a new job. And I was at school out at my friend's house afterwards. So it was really mom who bore the brunt of this. And what happened she didn't die, thankfully, but her immune system from that moment was irreparably destroyed. And her body's ability to process or fight off anything chemical from that point uh, just was was compromised. So mom 
began living almost in a in a vacuum. Uh, everything made her sick. She wore charcoal masks. She was connected to oxygen. We built her a safe room up in uh, a tile bathroom that was washed with special soap and the door was covered in tin foil, and her army cot was washed in baking soda 20 times, uh, really trying to sterilize her environment so she she wouldn't get sick. So this this was just weird as a kid. and and, you know, I was immediately thrust into a caregiver role, helping Dad take care of Mom, uh, helping to do you know the cleaning around the house and the cooking for Mom, cook her special meals, et cetera. And uh, family planning stopped. So I grew up an only child. Uh, with with a really sick mom. Looking back now, what was different about your childhood than the other kids around you and your friends? You know, I think if you'd asked me growing up, I I would have lamented the fact that you know why couldn't my mom be like the other moms and and why did my mom have to be so weird? There was definitely a sense of missing out. But I think now with with a little more perspective, it really taught me that I was needed. Um, I was I was absolutely needed to keep this family together, to make this family run. And I was given a lot of responsibility as a kid. And I just had to do a lot of things that other kids didn't have to do. So I think there was this, well, I'm needed, I'm valued, uh, I'm loved, and I could probably do anything. And you, you almost had, as a child, what I think many of us don't really step into and maybe till our 20s or 30s of a lot of by necessity ownership over the situation and and also the necessity and the desire to want to make it better yeah i actually wanted to be a doctor when i grew up I mean, my plan was to go to college and then medical school and and try and help my mom get better and and then help other sick people so there was there was definitely a sense of duty and responsibility and and really you know a lot of compassion as a kid. I mean, she 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 deeply struggled. Um, that then morphed into uh, much more of a teenage angst and rebellion <laughs> around seventeen eighteen. And at at uh, at eighteen years old, actually, I pretty much gave everybody the middle finger and and said, look, I'm sick of playing by other people's rules. I'm sick of being the one taking care of others. I'm going to go and have some fun myself. And that led to a really radical change. I mean, I wound up uh, moving to New York City, joining a band. When the band broke up, uh, becoming a nightclub promoter and uh, effectively assuming every vice that you might imagine uh, would come with the territory of working at 40 different nightclubs over a 10-year span. And, you know, faith had a, a part to play in it. I'd been brought up in a very religious household. My parents were were Christians. They decided not to sue the gas company for negligence. Um, I think they could have gotten millions and millions of dollars, but they just didn't want to become bitter. And I was, I was raised um, as this kind of virtuous kid playing piano in church on Sunday mornings. And I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't curse. And at 18, it was just, okay, now it's time to explore all of that, all that stuff I wasn't allowed to do. And, and New York City was was an amazing place to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that this is obviously not the path your parents wanted you to go down at 18. And looking back, of course, you know, you have substantially turned away from that life as well. And yet the part that of the story that's really fascinating to me is at 18 years old, you went into New York City and started promoting shows and stepped into this life and were 
incredibly successful financially and from a business standpoint. And I'm just curious, like, where did that come from? The the savviness to be able to step in and to influence in so many different capacities in business. I think I always valued independence as a kid. And my parents would never give me much money. I would always have to work for it. And I remember as a child wanting to have money, wanting to go and buy things starting these little entrepreneurial businesses. So I would take out a loan to then go buy a leaf blower, and then I would charge people to blow leaves off of their driveways. I would sell Christmas cards door to door around the holidays, you know, knocking on doors, you know, making $16 or $4 or $6.21 through these sales. So there was just the spirit of uh, my own man. I, I, I want my own money to go buy things. I mean, you know, the first car I bought was a 1980 uh, BMW that had, I think it had 300,000 miles on it, Dave. I mean, wow. this was this was a lemon, right? <laughs> but I wanted I wanted a BMW. I bought it from a farmer for 1,200 bucks. And my dad, of course, warned me that I'd spend, you know, five times that on the car just fixing it. And I'm like, I don't care. I want a red BMW that stick shift with a sunroof. And, you know, and I had to have it. And of course, he was he was right, although he might have lowballed uh, what it cost me to keep that stupid thing running uh, just for my vanity. So there was just this sense of creating a life of of trying out new things, a sense of adventure and travel that and maybe because my childhood felt repressed that this was the opposite of expression of that. Um, so many things in my life have just been extreme 180 degree turns. There's this almost everything I do is 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 all in. And I think that started at a young age. Yeah, indeed. And speaking of the 180 degree turns, you ended up at a New Year's Eve event in South America, 10 years into this lifestyle and promoting clubs and everything changed. Yeah. And, and if I just give you know the listener a picture of my disgusting life at that point, you know, here's a guy that has moved to New York, um, walked away from faith morality and, you know, smoke two packs of cigarettes for a day, every day for 10 years, heavy drinking problem, heavy gambling problem, heavy pornography and strip club problem, a user of cocaine, of ecstasy, of MDMA, of special K, I mean, pretty much everything short of heroin. But my life actually looks kind of amazing from the outside. You know, I'm flying around to Milan and Paris for Fashion Week, and I'm driving a BMW, and I've got a Rolex watch, and my girlfriend is in the cover of fashion magazines, and there's a grand piano in my New York apartment. And, and so from the outside, it looked like I was doing great, but, but I was really rotting inside. And I realized on this, this trip uh, to South America that I somehow – slowly but then suddenly become just the worst person that I knew and I was morally bankrupt I was spiritually bankrupt I mean I was I was leaving perhaps one of the most meaning meaningless legacies that a person could leave I mean I, I was just getting people drunk my, my actual job I made money by getting people wasted in nightclubs and trying to charge them you know eight hundred dollars for a bottle of champagne or twenty dollars for a vodka and soda so it, what was interesting about the contrast, again, was this realization dawned on me in a setting that was a beautiful setting. Everything was right. It was the perfect vacation with the most beautiful, perfect people, you know, everything I had been chasing. And I just realized in that moment, there's never going to be enough. 
you know, I'm, I'm chasing all the wrong things. There will never be enough money. There'll never be enough girls. There'll never be enough status. Someone's always going to have a better watch and a better car and more fame. And, and this is going to end in ruin. And it's like the veil was lifted. You know, it's almost like the, the game of musical chairs that I've been playing for 10 years. And one day the music stops and I've got nowhere to sit down. And it, it was jarring. It was, it was jolting. And I, I begin to, to long for home, long for, you know, the, the sacred upbringing, the, the virtue of that the, my parents had tried to teach me. And I began to pray again. I began to, began to re-explore a very lost Christian faith. And I just became interested in the idea of, of radical transformation. What would, what would true change look like? What would it look like to change my life 180 degrees? Not 20 degrees, not a pivot, you know, not 90 degrees, 180 degrees. What would it look like to walk in the exact opposite direction, to give up all of these vices and do something completely different? And it took me about six months, and there's a lot more to that story. But in the summer of that year, I wound up selling uh, almost every possession that I had and applying to the famous humanitarian charities that I'd heard of over the years. And my idea for what might be opposite was sell everything I own, quit the vices, and go serve the poor for one year. One year almost as a, as a penance or a tithe for the, the 10 years that I'd selfishly wasted. And the, the great irony is that I actually first sell everything and give up my apartment and then apply to the organizations. And I just get denied. No one will take me. You know, the, no serious, credible humanitarian organization knows what they would do with a nightclub promoter. Right, right. It doesn't matter that I could get a thousand people to stand outside a velvet rope and, and you know, beg for the chance of, of spending 20 bucks on a cocktail that cost us 20 cents to make, those skills didn't seem portable, right? They, they didn't, and, and still don't, right? I mean, what is a nightclub <laughs> promoter going to do for a world vision or save the children? And yet, it turns out there are a number of skills that are portable. Yeah, and, and all I needed was one. Dude. All and, I needed and, was one and, yes, and, and I got one yes. And, well, exactly, exactly. And I want to get to that because the yes is, is, is a really significant part of the story. Um, before Charity Water started, you found yourself in Africa. And I was wondering if you can tell me the story of Harris. Yeah. Well, gosh, I, I, I volunteered with a group called Mercy Ships. They were a, a group of humanitarian doctors and surgeons who would all give up their vacation time and they would operate for free on the poorest people in the world without access to medical care. And they sailed this huge ship, 522-foot ship, up and down the coast of Africa, and they would pull into port, and thousands of people would be there waiting to see doctors. I mean, Liberia, the country where I lived, uh, there was one doctor for every 50,000 citizens. You know, here, I think we have a doctor for every 130 Americans. It's even lower than that in, in parts of Europe. So what I saw, I was just completely unprepared for. I saw extreme facial deformities. I saw leprosy. I saw people blind. I saw people lame and um, people who had been burned by the rebels during the war as they poured hot oil to fuse body parts together. Just horrific, uh, horrific things. And there was one patient, a guy named Harris, who was about my age and he was suffocating to death on his own face with, with a six pound tumor. You know, we're talking about a volleyball a pink volleyball stuck inside his mouth and it had knocked out his teeth and was growing and growing and growing. And it had grown for 10 years. And 
you know, he became a really good friend. I was able to watch him go through this extraordinary process where the doctors in an eight hour surgery removed his tumor and started putting his face back together in titanium plates and jaws and bone, bone grafts. And I got to watch uh, someone on the brink of death fully restored to, to life through the service of these doctors. And it was, I got to take him home about a month later and I wound up throwing him a huge homecoming party, a surprise homecoming party in, in this village about four hours uh, up country and gave him a dinner for 50 of his friends. It was just, it was a really profound experience for me. Am I remembering right that when Harris and you first met, that it was you who had approached him and, and run into him in, in the city? It wasn't necessarily that he had come seeking for help. Am, am, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, he did. I mean, I would find patients all the time. We, we would go out into the villages and we'd find someone that hadn't heard of the ship. And we would try to convince them to come back with us. And often, in Harris's case, I had to show him before and after photos of other people around his age who had huge tumors that were removed. You know, he, he didn't look like he trusted me at all. And eventually was able to, to convince him to come on the ship and have this life-saving operation. When a lot of us get an idea to do something that would really help people or help an organization, I think there's a lot of hesitation of movement. And that is not the case for you, clearly, of all the stories you've just shared. You move. What is it that triggers action for you? You know, in this second part of life or, or of career, it was definitely meeting a need. You know, the, the need was everywhere. So after this two-year uh, time with Mercy Ships, of, of everything I'd seen, the thing that, that moved me to the most action uh, was the fact that people were drinking dirty water. And I learned that half the country was drinking from swamps and from dirty, brown, viscous ponds and rivers. And that so much of the disease we were seeing, and in fact, we would turn thousands of patients, potential patients away because we didn't have enough surgery slots or enough doctors. So much of this disease was caused by bad water. So it was almost like there was a responsibility to do something huge. And I just knew I had to do something about it. Charity Water has really become an incredibly visible organization. And you've all been lauded for the incredible work you've done, not only for helping people, but also for the way you've approached the marketing and getting the branding out for the organization. And one of the things you write in your book is that people always ask how we scored so many wins early on and what my process was for turning a no into a yes. And then you say, truthfully, the no's stayed no's most of the time, but I simply asked so many people that eventually I gathered enough yeses to get things done. What was that like? Dave, I mean, I have a lot of energy. <laughs> I mean, I, I just remember in those early days, I was making 10 pitches or presentations a day. I would wake up, I would schedule, you know, two breakfasts, sometimes three breakfasts, and I'm just out there telling the story. And this is, this is back in New York. So I, I finished my time with Mercy Ships, did two years there, said, I'm going to come back and pick one thing. I'd seen a lot. I'm going to pick one thing and make a huge impact in it. And that thing was water. And at the time, there were a billion people living worldwide without access to clean water. So in the early days, what I had was my story. I had the authenticity, you know, this eyewitness authenticity, because I had lived in the poorest country in the world. I had lived in Liberia. 
I had seen dirty water. I had walked with people. And I came back and I'm sharing my story. So there was just this visual communication, a pitch from me in 30 minutes. If I, if I cornered you at a restaurant or, or even in the early days, I cornered some DJs up in their DJ booth, you were going to look at 100 photos in 30 minutes. And I was going to describe each and every photo. So it was, it, was, it was almost like, hey, don't turn away. No, look at this. Look at this. You know, when I took this photo, when I was standing here, this is what Howa told me. This is what Helen told me. And that was very powerful in, in the beginning. It, it made people want to get involved. And I'm telling them, look, we're going to end this. I mean, we're going to build one of the greatest water charities the world has ever seen. One of the greatest charities the world has ever seen, because we're going to do things differently. We're going to speak to people's objections. We're going to completely reimagine and reinvent giving. And I was saying all this 12 years ago while living on a closet floor of a buddy's place and, you know, huddling around the couch. But I was putting in the time, you know, those early days I was doing 80 hours a week. You know, it was, it was constant motion. It was constant activities. And when you when you get 10 pitches during one day and one person says yes, you throw out the nine and you focus on the one and then you try and get one the next day. And then eventually one becomes two out of 10 and then three out of 10. And, you know, I, I don't know what our batting average is now, but it's, it's considerably higher. I mean, so much, uh, I've seen the pictures that you were showing people early on and hearing about those stories and it's so compelling. And I can see where people would move, even if it was just that one or two person people a day. What kept you going at that time? Well, we hadn't run out of money. <laughs> <laughs> So there was, there was always, uh, you know, that we were, we were living to fight another day. Yeah, but you were sleeping on the floor of a friend's apartment. I mean, you were really, you were all in. What was it that got you up at 5 a.m. whenever you got up to do those two breakfasts? You know, at the time, $10,000 builds an entire water project. Every next $10,000 meant one more community with clean water. 300 people whose lives would be forever changed by getting this basic need. So when someone gave 500 bucks, I'm like, I just need 20 more of those. When someone gave a thousand bucks, I just need 10 more of those. You know, when someone gave $20,000 to do two communities with clean water, I was over the moon. So I was really keeping score in people served in, in communities with access to clean water. And then I had the opportunity to just, I just kept flying back and forth to actually see the, the proof and the impact. Because I, I also needed stories of the happy endings. When I started, all I had was problems. Here's what it looks like not to have good water. Here's dirty water. Here's the suffering. Here are the, the disease and the contamination. And you know, the, here are the women walking five hours a day who are just wasting their time walking to a dirty river. So once we started funding our first projects, I'm flying back and forth taking photos and video personally of them. So I can say, look, this is what your money did. It's working, right? This was the before and this was the after. And I was using these images and I was finding my image, I was finding my energy to keep going from those stories of transformation. And, you know, even over the years, I mean, now, gosh, we've done 29,000 water projects in 26 countries for, you know, eight and a half million people. But I'll have these moments where I'll say, oh boy, this would, the whole year would have been worth it for this one, for one of the 29,000. 
because of the profound impact that I know it's made on on one family, on one woman, you know, with tears streaming down her face when she she tells me how much clean water has meant to her and how much it's changed her life. So I think I just I was I was um, wise enough to know that I would need this relationship back and forth, back and forth here, raising money, raising awareness, building the organization there, seeing the impact and bringing those stories back. And, you know, before I started having kids, I did 98 flights. I was on 98 airplanes in a single year. I've been to 69 countries now. I've been to Ethiopia 30 separate times. You know, I I wish this was in business class, but it's in coach. You know, Charity Waters raised a third of a billion dollars, but we've never used donor money to pay for a, a single business class ticket for myself or anyone else. So this was just pure passion that was driving us around the world to, to grow the thing. You find yourself now as, in addition to the founder of this incredible organization and having done all the work you've done, as the leader of a very large team. And you mentioned in the book that early on, you know, it wasn't necessarily easy, but the vision was simple because it was you. <laughs> it was you out telling the story. As the organization has grown, how do you inspire the movement in others on your team who may not necessarily be that all-in-on-everything personality like you are? We have a couple ways to do that. We have a culture of telling stories here. So I think Charity Water is uniquely good at constantly pumping out stories. I think we're better at that even than design and branding. And that's just, we see stories everywhere and we just tell them. We just have a culture of, oh, I just got back and let me tell you this amazing story. Or, or, oh, I just ran into a fundraiser who donated her birthday. Or, oh, this this little girl in Vancouver, she just she just did 12 lemonades for Charity Water. And, and at her last lemonade stand, do you know what? She, she got a local band to perform on her sidewalk. And this little girl just sent us $5,600 of lemonade sales. We're just... We, we just tell stories. We've made about a thousand videos telling stories from, from around the world and stories of our supporters. So in the office, there's a sense of the mission. We have huge 10-foot light boxes. There are TVs running images of the people that are being served. There are transparent dashboards talking about donation revenue, trends. There are dashboards talking about how much water is actually flowing from our water projects and the sensors that we're getting back from the field. And then another thing we do is we take our team to Africa or India or Asia every year. We take any employee who's been with us for a year on a staff trip. So even if you're answering the phones at Charity Water, even if you're, you know, in in accounts receivables or accounts payable and, and your work is not connected directly to people getting clean water, we want to pay for you to go over there and see how by answering the phone or or by, you know, entering checks in the system you really are part of something that's so much larger. And we found those trips, they're, they're, they're not cheap, but we found them to be so valuable and, and our staff comes back so inspired. And so much of the organization is about movement too. The charity water that was 10 years ago is by vision very similar, but by practice as far as the business model has changed a lot in the last 10 years too. How have you kept innovation going so consistently? We love the new. We love embracing the new. And the, the organization has has always felt like a startup. I think that's why we've been embraced by, you know, so many founders in Silicon Valley. You know, our, our biggest donors are are the donors of or the founders of Twitter and Spotify and Facebook and key executives at Apple. We behave not like a nonprofit, 
we, we, we don't behave like a traditional nonprofit, A, because none, none of us learned anything traditional. I mean, I started this at 30 with zero nonprofit experience. So I started with a white piece of paper and I got just to talk to everyday people and say, what would the perfect charity look like? What would you want? How would you want that charity to behave? How would you want them to treat you as a donor? How would you want them to handle your money? What kind of reporting would you want? What kind of transparency would you want? So we got to just build what we thought was the charity that would make us and our friends actually excited about engaging you know, the, the movement that we wanted to build that would speak to cynics and skeptics and people who thought charities were crooks or inefficient or, you know, that their money just went into a black hole. We just tried to, to do everything differently. So much of that has been driven by technology, whether it's putting all of our projects up on Google Earth or Google Maps or whether it's uh, mounting GPS trackers to our drilling rigs in Ethiopia and putting our rigs on Twitter whether it's monitoring a billion liters of flow from the most remote villages so that we know our wells are, are working over time and we can see what time people are using them and how much water they're taking. Whether it's virtual reality. I mean, we did our first virtual reality film four years ago. We shot it on eight GoPros that were donated. And we used that VR film. There was an eight-minute story of a 13-year-old girl getting clean water for the first time in her life. We used that VR film before people were even making VR films to raise millions and millions of dollars because we were early. You know, we have teams now here that are exploring the use of blockchain to further transparency or putting our rigs up on the ledger with smart contracts. We're exploring augmented reality. I mean, we're just so excited at moving the conversation forward. And all of this ties back to our core values, you know, the core value of transparency, of connecting donors and showing them their impact. If I can you know, show you or I can show your kids where $20 goes and the, and the power of a $20 donation to actually impact someone's life, I'm creating a virtuous circle of giving. You're going you're gonna to tell your friends about it and you're going to give more. You know, I'm winning back your trust. For those who are listening to this and thinking about movement, one of the things that I hope you hear is thinking about what you want to move on. And of course, one of the things I'd also recommend is checking out this book, Thirst. So much of it, Scott, just, it just inspires me to want to do more and to move on things. And for those who are inspired by the story and want to support Charity Water, what's the best way for people to do that? Yeah, well, the book actually supports Charity Water. So it's it's my story, but then it really becomes the story of the organization. And, and I, I wanted to put in so many lessons for entrepreneurs, you know, people who are building businesses and, and maybe struggling. I mean, we went through so many struggles and I wanted to just get honest and, and vulnerable with that in, in the hopes it might help others. Um, I think there's stuff in there for social entrepreneurs. And, you know, I would hope that I would be proof that it is truly never too late to change. Uh, you know, the chances are you'll you'll read this and say, well, I am definitely not as bad as that guy. <laughs> and, if, and if that guy can quit all that and walk in a different direction and, you know, raise a third of a billion dollars from, you know, a million donors in 100 countries and and get married and have kids and a beautiful family, like it's, it's no one's beyond redemption. You know, you're, you're not only, I think, does your past not define you, you can use the horrible things in your past and you can actually redeem them. You can, you can use them for good. So yeah, so just buying thirst is helping the organization, all my you know, net author proceeds, the advance, all that goes straight to the organization. And then there's another community that we're really passionate about called The Spring. And in the same way that people are showing up for Netflix or Spotify or, or Dropbox every month, 
this is a community of people now from 100 countries who are showing up for clean water every month. And our promise to them is whether they give $30 a month or $100 a month or you know $300 a month, we will use 100% of that. And um, we even pay back credit card transaction fees. Um, and we send 100% to the field. And then we will share stories of impact and let people know just, just how those monthly contributions are making a difference. So people could just learn more about that at thirstbook.com or charitywater.org slash spring. So we're going to get all those links in the show notes and this week's weekly leadership guide going out on Wednesday for those of you who uh, are inspired to learn more. It is a fascinating model, uh, a fascinating reengineering of how charity works, and it's really inspiring, Scott. I, I have one more question for you. I saw somewhere in a recent article or video with you mentioning that your mom was really looking forward to seeing your book come out, and then I saw you posted earlier this summer that she had passed away. What did your mom teach you about leadership? Well, first, I was so glad she got to read it. You know, she fought for almost 40 years for her health and got to meet uh, my children. So she got to spend time with her grandkids and then wound up pretty suddenly passing away from late stage pancreatic cancer. So it actually was completely unrelated to the, the carbon monoxide. I saw my mother fight and fight and fight against all odds. And there was this incredible sense of optimism. And she never became bitter. She never, you know, waved her fists in the air at God and said, how could you let this happen to me? She never waved her fists in the air at this, this gas company that was truly negligent. She was a person of deep faith and, and deep character and was always just looking up and was always incredibly optimistic. And it's funny, my wife and I talk about this sometimes, but it's almost impossible for me to hold a grudge. I mean, I can't think of anyone in my life that I'm angry at. And I never go to bed angry. Like I just never go to bed saying, oh, that person betrayed me or didn't do what they said they were going to do. And that's been like for years now. And I think I really learned that from mom, the ability to just very easily forgive and, and move on and, and look for the best in people. Scott Harrison, CEO and founder of Charity Water, the book Thirst, a story of redemption, compassion, and a mission of bringing clean water to the world. Scott, thanks for your time. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much, Scott. A number of related episodes to today's conversation. If you have your free membership established on the Coaching for Leaders website, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast. You'll be able to search by topic. And uh, these episodes in particular will be of value to you if today was helpful. Episode 238, How to Be a Nonconformist with Adam Grant. During that episode, Adam and I talked about his research into how to create something new, particularly those who have done a bit of an entrepreneurial venture or gone and created some new work in the world. Uh, Adam's done a ton of research on that out of Wharton, and he really debunks some of the myths that many of us think about uh, or think to be true when starting a new venture. And if you are wanting to get moving, that episode is a good starting point as well on getting started. And the research backs up the importance of getting started too. That's again, episode 238. Also a value to you will be episode 297, four steps to get unstuck and embrace change. Susan David was my guest on that episode. She talked a ton about emotions and how emotions play a role 
in getting us moving or not, or embracing change or not. My favorite line from her on that episode and her research is that emotions are data, not directions. Episode 297 is the one to check out for that. Then finally, episode 337, I've recommended it a number of times, also related to today's conversation, Six Tactics to Achieve Extraordinary Performance. Morton Hansen was my guest on that episode. We talked about his research out at Berkeley and what he's found that leaders and organizations are doing in order to achieve extraordinary performance and how they get moving. If you're looking for a good framework for how to get moving uh, coming out of this conversation, episode 337 is a great starting point for you. You can access all of those past episodes at coachingforleaders.com. If you haven't already set up your free membership on the website, you're going to want to do that because not only can you access those episodes, but you can search by topic for any episode in the library since 2011, a ton of resources there. So you can really zero in on the thing that is most important to you right now in your own leadership development. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com to set up your free membership. When you do, you'll get access to the entire back catalog with all of the episodes searchable by topic. In addition, you'll get access to my free 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead, plus access to the member cast, my book notes, my own personal library. There's a ton there. If you have your membership set up and you haven't checked those out, by the way, go on in there and check it out. And if you haven't, you can set all of that up just by going over to coachingforleaders.com. It's right on the main page there. Next episode, I am glad to actually welcome Mark Ipovitz to the show. It's going to be later this week for the next Saturday cast. Mark is one of our Academy members. He's going to be sharing a useful mindset for new leaders. So join me this Saturday for the next Saturday cast. And then next Monday, I'm welcoming James Clear to the show to teach us how to become the person you want to be. It's actually a great follow-up to today's conversation with Scott. So check that out next Monday. Thank you so much this week to CQE Leadership Coach in Canada for the kind review you left on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. If you have been listening to the show for a bit and would like to leave a rating or review, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash Apple. If you're an Overcast user and this episode was helpful, just hit the star button on the app to recommend it to others. Thank you if you do either. I know I said last week we we're going to have the Q&A show this week. It's a long story. I didn't plan very well. We will be back the first Monday of next month with the Q&A show. Have a great week, everyone. See you next Monday and the Saturday. Take care.